The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. When we come here on Trinity Sunday, you know, Pastor Casey's working on his PhD. Yeah, and, and Pastor Josh and me have different levels of learning. But we must admit that when we come here to the burning core of our faith, we must recognize that we come to a great mystery. The degrees burn up. The ordination certificates fall off the wall. And here we are at the depth of God himself. We're, we're going to begin with a, a reading in John chapter 17. You can turn your Bibles there. But then after that, we're going to immediately move back to Genesis 2. So don't stay there long. Go ahead and turn to John uh, chapter 17 and then rise for a reading of God's perfect and inerrant word. We're looking at verses 20 and 23 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray, Father, as we, as we seek to understand and appreciate the fact that you are one God in three persons, three persons in one God. And Father, we come here to the beating heart of our faith, and it is a great mystery. Theologians have debated this for centuries, and we can hardly wrap our minds around it, but Father, my prayer this morning is that where our reason and our, and our intellect fails, I pray that our faith would freely swim. Help us to look on you in faith. Help us to see you as our Father. Help us to love and adore the Son by the power of your Spirit this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week at our BFG, uh, the, our conversation uh, came to a halt. Uh, we had done our prayer requests. We had discussed the sermon. And the conversation uh, began to t- turn towards a bit of the grotesque. You see, uh, my good friend Jane, friend, Jane Ashley Pace, a, a member of the church, uh, she is the publisher for the Old Era, And she said something very strange I didn't expect to hear from a reporter. She said that one of her favorite things to do in the paper is to read the obituaries. Now, I know a lot of you probably after the service are going to go check on Jane Ashley, make sure that she's doing okay. But I actually, she, she likes seeing the summaries of people's lives, but... You know, I've never been much of a fan myself, you know, because when you, when you read an obituary, it doesn't, it doesn't really, a lot of them, they don't tell you anything about the person, right? Uh, born 19, 1942, uh, went to be with their Lord, uh, 2022, uh, they're survived by their, their nephew, Jimmy, and their dog, Pogo. 
you know, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything about the person, but you do come across ones, and these are some that, that Jane Ashley shared, uh, that, t- that really show you who the person is. Here's, here's one of my favorites. Mary Ann Alfred Nolan, May 15th, 2016, resided in Richmond, Virginia. And, and remember that date, May 15th, 2016, resided in Richmond, Virginia, obituary. Faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Mary Ann Nolan of Richmond chose instead to pass into the eternal love of God. <laughs> On Sunday, May 15th, 2016, at the age of 68, visitation is at Trinity United Methodist Church. Now, I love that one because you get a real, well, I'm not making a political point, I'm saying that the person jumps off the page. You get a sense of who she was. And, and that's the experience I think that a lot of us have had with the Trinity. Maybe in, in, your, in your children's group when you were a kid or in your youth group or someone has tried to explain the Trinity to you. And then they brought, up, they brought out a prop bag, which is never a good sign. And they grab out an egg and they say that uh, God, it's, it's like an egg. There's the shell, there's the white, and then there's the yolk. Or maybe you got the, the, the clover you, you have one plant, and then you, there, there's three stems, but there, it's all one plant. Or maybe it's like water. You have the liquid form, and then the solid form if it gets too cold. And then if you really heat it up, it turns into gas. This is all the forms of God. Now, I understand why we reach for those. There's some utility, especially in explaining to children uh, what, what seems like a contradiction to our minds. But my aim today is not to try to explain the Trinity. I want to show the Trinity to you in Scripture. Because there's one way to approach this. I could go to all the proof texts that say there's a Trinity. And by the way, let's get this out of the way. The word Trinity is not in your Bibles. But the truth is that there's a Father, there's a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And they're best seen in action. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you the three persons of the Trinity and see, show you them in action so we could better see. And my argument is going to be, not that the Trinity is in the Bible, but there is no redemption. There is no gospel without a Trinitarian God. So look with me at Genesis. Uh, we're looking at chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 7. And I'm going to be skipping around. It's a topical sermon, so forgive me. Uh, It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, moving forward to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." And see, we we see God is called a father, but we need to understand, where does this come from in the scriptures? Where do we see this title father come out? Well, there's a number of passages in Exodus 4, speaking to Moses. He's commissioning Moses to go free the people Israel. He says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. The prophet Jeremiah writes, speaking the the words of the Lord, he says, With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I'll lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, 
and Ephraim is my firstborn. You see, there's a number of ways God is our Father. He's created us, and we can see that God is self-identified as a Father to Israel, but that title for Him goes from the beginning of the Bible all the way until the end. In fact, it's the most consistent title for God. He is a Father. And I want to argue with you that a father, God self-identifies in this way because it is his primary identity. Now think with me about this. Here's how I want to demonstrate. How, what, what was God the Father doing before he created anything? Right? We believe that, that God didn't begin with creation, that he's existed for eternity past, and then he created us. But what was he doing? Was he twiddling his thumbs? Was he meditating on himself? Is that what he was doing? Well, what you believe God was doing before creation has everything to do with how you see him. But we're shown in Scripture. It says here, John 17, 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what God was doing. He in eternity was loving his own son. He was loving his son, Jesus Christ, for eternity. And so if God is in his innermost core a father, and we can tell that because that's what he was doing forever, he's been a father to a son. He's loved someone who's outside of himself, who's not him. And it's his nature to love someone other than him. And so we see, now that we understand that God is a father, because it changes everything about how you view someone. I remember when I first met uh, Casey McCall. Uh, this is before he was Pastor Casey. Back then he was, a, uh, he was the student uh, leader. Uh, he had not yet been ordained, not become a pastor or anything. But I was a raw, new believer in Christ. And, I was, and it's important to understand that I was raised Catholic. And so, Pastor Casey, he had been teaching me about what does biblical manhood look like? What does it look like to lead a home? And he's explaining all of these things to me, and they're blowing my mind. I'm seeing all these things, and I'm imagining his home, right? Because I'm imagining, and this is all brand new to me, because if, if in the Catholic Church, if you find out a priest has a family, you've got to call the Vatican. All right, there's a, prob there's, a pro there's a scandal that they need to know. Call the newspapers. You see, I had never come, come to grips with the fact that a, a clergy could have a family. I'd never, it, it was so strange to me. And it became even stranger when he invited me to his house. You see, I had already been hearing about biblical manhood, about leadership, headship. And I was expecting, when I came in there, I was expecting a Navy ship, yes, sir, Yes, sir, Father, expecting, you know, the kids walking down the stairs saying, good night, good night, good night. You know, expecting that. You know, and I, I want to show you a picture of, um, I actually have a picture that survived from that long ago. There's behind the text there. I mean, there you go. It's, so there's me, and there, if, you, if you don't recognize the, the, the kind of disamused uh, face, that's Josiah McCall on the bottom, on the, on the left there. And I was invited into this home. You can take that off. I was invited into a home. I rem you know, 
I think I understood the teaching about biblical headship and all that stuff. You know, I had, I had learned it. I had read the scriptures. I was being taught them. But when I saw him walk into his home, not, not during an event, but just walk into his home, and then the pitter-patter, daddy, daddy, daddy. And of course, Lillian was first up, right? She has to be. And so she jumped up, and he gave her a big, big smooch. And right then, I understood a little bit more about what fatherhood is, what leading a home is. Because at the bottom, yes, I respected him because he was a great minister. Yes, I respected him because he, was, he, he knew the Bible. But then I saw him as a father, and it changed the way that I viewed him. And so when we see God as a father, we're going to start reading our Bibles differently. Back to, back to Genesis 2, you're going to see a few features. It says, the first thing that the Lord God does, he forms man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed nostrils into his life. He breathed life into his nostrils. He planted a garden and made spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then he put the man in the garden and said, work it and keep it. And he says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now, you could read that and see, oh, there's an authoritative God who's throwing someone under earth. But when you view this as a father, when you view God as a father, look at what he does. He brings life and vitality. He overflows with it. He breathes life into man. And then he plants him a garden. And it's not just full of flowers. It's filled with nourishment. It's filled with plants, fruits. It's a nourishing home. And then he gives, him, gives man responsibility. He gives him chores. He says, you're going to have to take care of this place. No free rides. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now, I just want to take a pause here, and I want to acknowledge that all of us have had an earthly father. And each of those men, to some degree, has failed in some respect. Some much more than others. I love my father. I think he did an amazing job uh, raising me and loving me. Not without his flaws, but I want to acknowledge that there are some in the room today who've had fathers who've failed miserably. But I want you to understand that the way we view our fathers is inevitably going to change the way that we view God the Father. But I want you to see here that this is the prototype. This is the model. And so, fathers, I need you to pay attention because God has done four things that we need to pay attention to. Number one, he brings life and vitality into the home. Now, fathers, I want you to really examine yourself here because if we mess up here, we've messed up the whole deal. When you come home from work, you open the door and you step into your home, one of two things is going to happen. The, the room is going to fill with life and excitement and vitality, or everyone in the home is going to begin walking on eggshells. They're going to be afraid to anger you, afraid of how you'll react to any overstep. Fathers, we ought to be bringing life into our homes. So that first step out of the home office, if you're working from home, back, in, back into the home, are you bringing life and vitality? Are you do, or do you bring a sense of, of sullenness into your home? Number two, he, he provides a nourishing home, a place where the children can grow physically and spiritually. See, that's what the home is, fathers. 
You need to pay attention here. The church is not where your children come to grow. This is not the only place they should be provided spiritual nourishment. You ought to be leading in the discipleship of your children. They ought to know the gospel first as you said it from your lips, fathers. Your home ought to be a place where they can grow and thrive. And then, number three, here, here we're getting to the controversial stuff. He gives responsibility. Right? He doesn't leave man alone to figure out what to do. He doesn't leave them and, 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 and take care of the garden himself. He gives man responsibility in the home. And this is a particular failing for us in this culture, in this day and age, in this generation. It has become increasingly uh, popular, it's become increasingly prevalent that children are not contributing to the life in the home. And this is causing parents to burn out. This is causing parents, they're, they're coming home from work, oftentimes in, in, uh, where they work two jobs out of the home, and then they find that the dishes need to be done, the whole house needs to be cleaned, and the children sit there and just tap on their iPads while you do all the work. And it's exasperating. But one, fathers, one of the ways that we can image God is by giving our children responsibilities in the home. So I want to challenge you to reevaluate re what your children are doing during the day. Are they just focusing on themselves, entertaining themselves, or are you giving them ownership stake in your home? This is one of the ways that we can image God. But here, the fourth way it says, and here, here's the big one. He says, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He sets authoritative boundaries. Now, church, this is not going to win you any popularity contest, guys. As you seek to lead your families, lead your children, this is not going to win you any popularity contest, which is what we're terrified of. At the end of the day, that our kids won't like us, but our goal is not to impress anyone outside of our home. It's not to impress our kids or even get them to like us. Our goal as fathers is to image the fatherhood of God in our homes. And what that means is setting authoritative boundaries. That means no means no. That means you don't have to explain everything you hand, every command you hand down. You could say, what? Because I said so. Pastor Casey wrote a terrific article about this on his blog. I encourage you to look it up and read it. But God, when he tells, he tells Adam and Eve not to eat of any, any tree in the garden, he doesn't explain why. He doesn't tell them, oh, this is what's going to happen. He expects them to trust him. And that's where we failed. So fathers, I want to encourage you to set authoritative boundaries. Here's the most common places I see you fail. I see us fail. What does their access to technology look like? Fathers, this should not be a question that you don't know the answer to or have to check with your wife. What is your children's access to the internet? The entire world is available on these screens, and yet we give them an iPad when they're four years old and say, go, have fun. Mothers, we are abdicating our responsibility if our children have unrestricted access to the internet. Or just with, with playtime in general? Do they just get to do whatever they want, whenever they want? Is that what's happening in your home? No, it is our job to set boundaries with which they can, can thrive. And we see God's identity is clearly shown here as he sets boundaries and says, this is where you must not go. And all of these he does out of love 
first for his son. So let's look at, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to take a look at the son, the twice baptized son. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to, be, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Let's pause there. John has noticed something interesting about Jesus. Now let's kind of set the scene here. Right? You see John baptizing and you can imagine being there and being in, in front of a huge line of people who are being baptized by John in this repentance for sin, to get this baptism of repentance for sin. And there seems to be a little bit of a rhythm building, right? Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. You come up, you do exactly what Evie Hargrove just did. You say, Jesus is Lord, John the Baptist is going to duck you, and then the line moves right along. But here, there's a pause the line gets held up. The rhythm is broken. And John the Baptist looks at him and says, Hey, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You're the one who needs to baptize me. Jesus answers him and says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he, then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now right now, your theology little alarm bells should be going off. And you should be wondering, why on earth is Jesus there? You see, we know that John the Baptist, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. You come there to get your sins washed away. But we know Jesus was without sin. Why on earth does he need to be baptized? What is he doing there? There are three primary reasons. This was a baptism of confirmation. And you'll know as you read this text, your, your mind, you should have a little bell in your, in, in your mind ringing off where it says, uh, the heavens opened up to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Could also be translated hovering. To rest on him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This reminds us of creation. We're brought back to where the, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the uncreated, unfinished earth. And what he's doing in this baptism, he's confirming for us, he says, the same word made flesh, the same word that I created the universe through, this is my son. This is him. He's confirming his identity as the divine son of God. It's also a baptism of identification. You know, if you're reading your Bibles, you're reading your Gospels correctly, especially as you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to continually find yourself saying, what on earth is Jesus doing there? Why is, he, why, is he, why is he dining with sinners? Why is he spending time, why is he spending time with these, these malcontents, these rough figures, these figures that don't represent religious fidelity at all? They're, they're rough, they're sinners, they're publicly viewed as, as the unclean, and Jesus is around them. You see, Jesus in his baptism, he is identifying with us. He is not greater than us. He is not, he's not taking uh, greatness, but he's, he's taking on human flesh, 
and he is identifying with us. But thirdly, and what I want, want to say most importantly to our point here is that this is a baptism of anticipation. You see, uh, Jesus is he's walking with, uh, with his disciples. He's walking with James and John and those two, they're arguing about, man, who's going to sit with, with Jesus at his right hand and his left? Who's going who's gonna to have the place of, of great, greatest honor once, once you finally uh, take the crown and, and rule over the cosmos? What is, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to have the place of honor? This is how Jesus responds to him. He says, he says to him, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, this would be confusing for them because he's saying, Oh, well, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized in? And they're confused because, hey, wait, they're looking at each other, checking it. Wait, he was baptized in the Jordan by John. I was there. You know, I saw that. He told us that. What do you mean a baptism? Is he going to be baptized again? The key is here, it says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? This is language that's used to symbolize the wrath of God poured out on Jesus. This is the cup that he asked that God would take away from him if he could, if it would be possible. What I want you to see here is that the cross is a uniquely Trinitarian event. See, Jesus on the cross, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at face value, we, we see that and we say, oh, the Father left the Son. But we need to look at what the Scripture says about his crucifixion as well. In one sense, yes, the Son has been forsaken. Isaiah 53 says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. What we can see here is that on the cross, this horrendous, uh, this horrendous symbol of torture on the cross, it's horrific not because God is not there, but because, because God the Father is there. And in this moment, when the Son became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, for that moment, God pours out His rejection and wrath on the Son. See, this is what the gospel is. You know, there's two kind of modes that we can believe the gospel, and it's going to influence the way we think about a lot of things. See, there's one way to think about the gospel. We have a very stern father who's very, who's very upset with us about our sin and wants to crush us. But we're lucky he's got a very great, very kind son who's going to step in at the last minute, stop the punishment of the father, say, no, I'm going to take it. And now God, God the Father begrudgingly loves us, but though he knows we're guilty. That's one way to think about the gospel, and many of you probably think about it that way today. But here's the second way. We have a loving Father who seeks to show mercy, but he's just and he cannot give that up. He cannot sacrifice his justice for his mercy. And a willing son who goes to endure the wrath of God on the cross by the power of the Spirit so that we can be reunited with Him, so that we can have His righteous record. And so that we may not be forsaken, 
quite the opposite so that we could be adopted. Let's look at the spirit of adoption in Romans 8. Verses 15 and 16. Turn your Bibles there. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The scripture here says that we, in the spirit of adoption, can be called sons. But in what sense? What does that mean that we can be called sin? Let me read this passage again from John chapter 17. He says, he says that they all, he says that they all may be one just as you the Father are in me and I in you and that they also may be in us. Think about those words. What happens in the gospel is not just forgiveness. And listen, you can get forgiveness from any God in the whole pantheon. You can go to Allah and find forgiveness. You can go to any God and find forgiveness. But what we see here in the gospel of the triune God is that he doesn't just offer us forgiveness. He does, but he also adopts us into his family. Not just forgiveness, but he gives us a house key. He brings us into the inner life of the Trinity. Why? So that the world may believe that you've sent him. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What wondrous love is this church that you are not a second-class citizen in the household of God, that he sees you just as he sees his own son. With the same love that he's loved the son from eternity past, that love rests on you in the spirit. What, what an honor it is to be called a child of God. But let's bring this down to earth. Let's, what is, let's see what this means in the, in the simplest terms. Continue. He says, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again, if you're familiar with your Bibles, there should be a bell ringing. I've heard that phrase before. It goes back to Mark chapter 14, verses 35 and 36. It says, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground, speaking of Jesus, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. We see here in this moment in Gethsemane, disciples are not present. They're, not, they're, they're sleeping. And here in private, Jesus prays to his Father and he says, Abba, a term of great intimacy. This is the language of a son speaking to his Father. You know, the fun, one of the fun things in being in a church filled with kids is that as you walk through the children's wing or you see people in, different people at church, all of the kids in the church call their dads different things. You know, uh, my friend uh, Rick Kelly, he's adopted s several children uh, from China, and so naturally uh, they call him Baba, Chinese term uh, for daddy, father. And as you go through, and some, everybody's got different names that are kind of Papa, you know, this. Now imagine if one of, if one of them, and, and what Fuller calls me, he calls me Dada. He's always called me Dada. He's the only one who does it. He's kind of the, he's got a little screw loose there. But he's always called me Dada. 
Now imagine if one of the other children in the church came up to me and said, Hey, Dada, that would be strange, wouldn't it? That's who I am, but that's not who I am to you. But here what we see in Romans 8 is that we get to call out in the Spirit and say, Abba, Father. This intimate language within the Trinity becomes our language when we pray to God. We have this intimate, we're welcomed in into the most intimate places of the Trinity. And we're able to look at the Father and call him Abba. Now what am I saying? Are you saying that you should, when you're praying, you should call God Daddy? Please don't. Please don't do that. But what I am saying is that your identity, identity should be so hidden in Christ that when you look at God the Father, you see Abba. You are his child. So here we are, Christians, loved by the Father, baptized with the Spirit,